Chapter 19 of Carpenter's Geographical Reader, Asia, by Frank Carpenter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Betty B. Chinese Boats and Boat People. We have returned to Peking and are on our way south to the valley of the Yangtze. We might have gone there by rail, taking the road that crosses the Great Plain to Hankow, the chief commercial city of interior China, lying on the Yangtze, six or seven hundred miles from the sea. We prefer, however, to travel by boat, as we wish to explore the Grand Canal, built by the Chinese centuries ago as their most important trade route. This canal runs from Tientsin, about seven hundred miles southward, to the rich city of Hangzhou, which is southwest of Shanghai. It crosses the Huang and the Yangtze and other large streams, cutting its way through one of the most thickly populated parts of the globe. In some places it has followed the streams, winding in and out for miles without locks. In others, where the land is low, its bed is a raised earthwork walled on both sides with stones. Some of the embankments are twenty feet high, and the stream they enclose is often two hundred feet wide. There are many locks, and the boats are dragged by men from one level to another. At present, the canal is going to ruin. It is less and less used every year, the boats for carrying the tribute rice to Peking having been displaced by the railroads and by the steamers which go by sea to Tientsin. We find our journey delightful. We pass many walled cities and towns and thousands of farm villages, the latter marked by clumps of trees scattered over the landscape. Our boat moves along slowly and we frequently get off to walk on the banks. We meet Chinese craft here and there, and now and then harness ourselves side by side with the yellow-skinned boys and help them drag their little vessels along. We cross the wide Huang, and reaching the Yangtze, take a steamer for a trip up that mighty stream. The Yangtze is more than 3,000 miles long, and ocean vessels can sail over its course to Yichang, which is 1,000 miles from the sea. It is a great water highway to the interior of the country, having so many tributaries that it might be called the Mississippi of China. As we sit on the deck of our steamer, in the lower part of its course, we can see the masts and sails of boats moving across the green fields. The country is cut up with dikes and canals quite as much as is Holland. There are vast territories where nearly every man's house can be visited by boat, and where the people seem to live on the water. China has so many canals that its navigable streams form the principal highways. The largest cities stand upon the banks of the rivers, and there are industrial centers at every few miles. Each city has its peculiarities. Some, such as Hangzhou and Suchow on the Grand Canal, are noted for their manufacture of silk, and others, like Hankou, our great iron centers. Nanking, which is on the Yangtze, several hours by rail from Shanghai, has streets as wide as those we saw in Peking, while in Canton, on the Pearl River, a great business city with more than a million people, the streets are so narrow that we have to crowd against the walls to let the wheelbarrows go by. One of the finest cities of the country is Shanghai, situated not far from the coast on the Wampoa a branch of the Yangtze. It is the chief port and might be called the New York of China. 
It has fine foreign buildings, great factories devoted to the making of cotton and silk, and other industries of almost every description. We can get some idea of the trade of a country by a look at its shipping. China is said to have more boats of one kind and another than all the rest of the world put together. It has lines of steamships on its principal rivers and native craft on most of the streams. At the walled cities, which we pass on our trip up the Yangtze, there are forests of masts belonging to boats of all sizes, descriptions, and shapes. We see Chinese junks with wide-spreading sails ribbed with bamboo and fishing craft, whose sails are shaped like the wings of a bat, catching the slightest wind as they move along. We go by barges loaded with merchandise and canoes sculled by Chinese who stand at the stern. There are craft shaped just like a slipper, which are used as dispatch boats and go very fast. We see queerly shaped boats with paddle wheels on their sides, turned by men, a half dozen coolies doing the work of a small gasoline engine, and are now and then stopped by beggars who sail through the canals from one town to another to ask alms of the people. The bigger boats lie at anchor while the men go upon shore and visit the villages. Some of the beggars are lepers, and we pay them well to keep out of our way. The Chinese rivers are infested by pirates. We carry guns and have a little cannon in the front of our ship. Here and there at the edge of a village we see a boat or ship cut in half and stood upon end. We are told that it once belonged to some thieves or pirates, and that it marks the place where they were beheaded the boat having been erected as a warning to others. There are also police boats and customs boats whose sole business is to collect taxes on shipping. As we continue our journey, we discover that every locality has its own kind of boats, the only thing in common being the eyes painted on each side of the prow. The Chinese have a tradition that a boat must have eyes to see its way through the water. Therefore, the small boats are given small eyes the cargo boat's eyes a little bigger, while the eyes of the ships are as large as a soup plate. During a trip on the Pei River, I once happened to hang my feet over one of the eyes of my boat, whereupon the captain rushed up and begged me to move. Said he, in a peculiar English, that some Chinese use in talking to foreigners. Boat must have eye, no have eye, no can see, no can see, how can go? This eye superstition is prevalent among the common Chinese. Indeed, when the first railroad locomotive was built, it existed to such an extent that the workmen insisted that an eye should be painted on each side of the smokestack in order that the engine might be able to see its way along the track. It is safe to say that many millions of Chinese are born, live, and die upon the water. The boats carry numerous people, and they are not only the homes of the sailors, but of their families as well. On the Pearl River, near Canton, there are said to be 300,000 people living upon boats of various kinds. On the larger craft, the children swarm, and we shall see them playing about upon deck. The little boys often have barrels, about a foot long and six inches thick, tied to their backs. The barrels have closed heads, top and bottom. They are intended as life preservers for if the children fall overboard, they will keep them afloat until their parents can pull them out of the water. Among the queer boats of the Pearl River are those devoted to the rearing of ducks and geese, a business in which the Chinese are exceedingly skillful. 
they hatch goose eggs and duck eggs in baskets of chaff placing them in rooms heated by charcoal to just the right temperature when the little goslings and ducklings come out of their shells they are carefully handled and for five days are kept away from all noise they are fed upon rice water and then on boiled rice and at the end of two weeks are put on these boats and made to shift for themselves the duck boats are built like rafts with coops hung to the sides in these coops and on the boats the fowls stay a single vessel often holding as many as one thousand young geese or ducks the boat is now rowed up and down the creeks until it comes to a low swampy place here the owner opens the coops and lays down a board which extends from the boat to the bank the ducks immediately run out and cross over the board and begin to hunt in the mud they dig down into it with their bills and pick out all the worms and snails they can find after they have fed several hours the captain of the boat makes a peculiar call and the ducks obeying his voice return to the boat they come quickly too for the last duck always gets a blow with a stick when the ducks are grown the captain carries them for sale from town to town in his boat there are fowl markets in all the cities in which thousands of geese and ducks are sold every day end of chapter nineteen